let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you, Lord, for the message of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that that message was passed along to the Apostle Paul directly by Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that that message was passed along from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. And we thank you, Lord, that those in the Ephesian church passed that message along to somebody else, and they told someone else, and they told someone else, and so on and so on, until 2,000 years later that message finally reached us. Lord, we thank you that we are links in the chain of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray, as we even talk to the, to the children, I pray that, that we would get the message right. And that we would see our responsibility to pass it along to others. And, and Lord, as we encounter difficulties, we, we face obstacles, and quite often obstacles that our own flesh throws up. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the strength, the power of God that is at work in us to tear down those obstacles for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. Amen. Well, most of us here know the name Paul Revere. And we've heard about his role in the Revolutionary War and, and how he was, was told to, to travel throughout the streets of Boston and, and popularly we're, we're told that, that he was, was warning the American forces uh, during the American Revolution with the words, the British are coming. Well, we know the name Paul Revere. But have you heard the name Laura Secor? Well, if you grew up in Eastern Canada, you probably associate the name Laura Secord with chocolate stores. There's there's a hundred chocolate stores in Eastern Canada that are that have the name Laura Secord. But Laura Secord's importance to Canada and, and not just to Eastern Canada is far, far greater than just the, the purveyor of chocolate. Laura Secord is Canada's Paul Revere. Except her warning wasn't the British are coming, but the Americans are coming. During the war of, of 1812 between Canada, well, between Canada and the United States, Secord heard American <coughs> officers speaking of a planned attack of a British outpost within Canada. These American forces were going to cross into Canada and, and launch a sneak attack against British forces that were stationed in a place called Beaver Dams, which is in what is now known as Niagara Falls, the town of Niagara Falls. And someone needed to warn them. Well, it was 20 kilometers by direct road from where Secord was to that, that British garrison, and, and, but she knew that somebody needed to make that trip, and her husband had been, been wounded in, a, in another battle, and he had, he had his, his knee destroyed and his, his shoulder destroyed in that battle, and so he was unable to make the trip, and so Secord decided that she was going to go herself. 
but she couldn't take the direct route, that, that 20 kilometers along the road, because the area was, was peppered with American forces and, and scouts, and, and so she, she had to take the long way. So this 37-year-old mother of five, she was, was slight of build, and she was only five foot four, she decided that, that she was going to brave the wilderness and brave the, 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 the threats and was going to go and deliver the message herself. So she followed a creek through the woods and, and through fields and traveled, it ended up being 30 kilometers. When she came to a, an, an encampment of Mohawk warriors. And maybe you can imagine Secord's fear as she encountered these, these fierce looking natives and, but, but she, she realized that they were actually allies of the British. And so she, she stammered out the message of, of the impending attack of the Americans. And so the, the chief of the Mohawks then went to the, the British lieutenant and warned him of the attack. And then together, these, these natives, these Mohawks and the British went and surprised the Americans and took the whole force captive. It, it was a decisive Victory. Laura Secord was an unsung hero. After the war, little was known of, of what she had done until 1860 when the Prince of Wales, who's the, the future um, King of England, the, he would become King Edward VII, he was visiting Canada. By then, Secord was 85 years old. Her husband had died many years before, and she and her family had lived in poverty. <coughs> When the prince learned of, of what Secord has done, he rewarded her with 100 pounds, which was a kingly sum in, these, in those days. It would, would be worth today close to $10,000 Canadian. So Laura Secord was an unsung hero until the king rewarded her. Laura Secord was, was also an unlikely hero. Most wouldn't think to send a tiny, middle-aged mother of five, on such a dangerous journey. But she certainly saved the lives of those British troops. And if she hadn't have gone, if she hadn't have delivered that message, who knows what the outcome of the war might have been. What would have happened if Laura Secord didn't relay that message? Well, the Apostle Paul was also an unlikely hero. Once Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee, persecutor of the church, hater of Gentiles, hater of Christ, he became a hero of the faith. He wrote this epistle to the Ephesians as a prisoner, and so in many respects he looked like an unsung hero. You can read elsewhere of the, the, the strife that the Apostle Paul experienced. And he was, was beaten with rods and he was stoned and he was shipwrecked and he faced several imprisonments for the gospel. And here as he wrote this, he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. A prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles for these Ephesian Christians, most of whom were Gentile believers. With the beginning of chapter 3, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul once again was about to launch into a prayer for the Ephesian Christians. 
But when he, be, when he began in, in chapter 3, verse 1, to say, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, when he got to that, he stopped short. We talked last week how there's a, there's in most Bibles, modern Bibles, there's a, a line there to show that, that he's broken off his thought. That he's interrupted himself. himself. And we saw last week that, that chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to verse 13, is an interruption. How the fact for the Apostle Paul, that he was a prisoner of Christ for the Gentiles, that, that his attention had been arrested. And so he then diverted course and, and began to speak about the, the glories of what he had received and the, the, the glories of God's grace in his life, that, that he would be, that he, persecutor of the church, would be used of God to help build the church. The Apostle Paul was awestruck by the grace of God in his conversion and the grace of God in his commission. And his commission was to reveal the mystery of Christ that been, had been hidden in previous generations. This mystery he describes in verse 6, this mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what he's, he's saying here is that, that Gentiles and Jews are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow sharers in Christ. That the walls of hostility had been broken <coughs> down in Christ. So with the, the revelation of that, that glorious news in verse 7, it, it seems almost shocking or in verse 6 rather, they, it seems almost shocking that in verse 7 that, that the Apostle Paul would then begin to talk about himself. It really seems like, like after thinking about the glories of, of Jew and Gentile, one together in Christ, that after that he comes crashing down to earth to speak of himself. But it's obvious that there's not even a hint of pride here. He's saying, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. And then he describes himself as the very least of all the saints. He's piling up adjectives to show just how lowly he is. He's saying, I am the least of the least. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he will describe himself as the chief of sinners. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he'll describe himself as the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church of God. So here is Paul, who was formerly a persecutor of the church, and now he is a pillar of the church. He was formerly a foe of the church, and now he's part of the foundation of the church. What could possibly bring about such a dramatic change? Not just change of action, but change of heart. That the same people we had once hated, he was now suffering for. That the, the same God that he once hated, he is now imprisoned for. He now loves these people, and He loves their God. What could possibly bring about a change like that? 
God's grace. God's grace. Look at it. And if you look at this in verses 7 and 8, you can see that the focus here is on, on God's grace and God's power. In fact, the focus on these things has really been, been, been evident all the way so far through the, the, the book of Ephesians. And as we, all the way from, from chapter 1, verse 3, and, and into this, and to the end of this chapter. He's been talking to He's been talking to the Ephesians about the, the same power that was at work in Christ, raising Christ from the dead, was now at work in them. That, that same power that, that made them, even though they were dead in sinners, that same power had made them alive in Christ Jesus and had raised them with Christ Jesus to the heavenly places. That that same power had broken down the wall of hostility between God and Gentiles, and between God and between God's people and Gentiles. He's, this is the power that was at work in God's people. This is the power that was at work in Paul. And so he says exactly how this happened. It was a gift of God's grace. Look at it there in, in verse 7. It was a gift of God's grace given to me. And then again in verse of eight, in verse eight, to me the least of the of the uh, of the saints, this grace was given. It's grace. It's not as though Paul did anything to deserve or would ever do anything to deserve what God was going to do in him and through him. God made him a minister by the working of his power. It, it's not as though God looked down through the corridors of time and said, I can use that guy. I want him on my team. It was simply because of God's grace. It was all of grace. And so in choosing Paul, God wanted to take a self-righteous Pharisee, an enemy of Christ with martyr's blood on his hands, and use him to save billions. I'm not exaggerating. God has used the Apostle Paul to save billions. There is no single human being in, in the history of the world that has done more for the church than the Apostle Paul. That is God's grace. Not just God's converting grace, but God's commissioning grace. When you think about your own life, your life prior to coming to Christ, It was characterized by sin. It was characterized by hatred of God. Now, it, I'm, I'm pretty confident that it wasn't as, as out there and in your face as it was with the Apostle Paul. I'm pretty sure that, that none of us have, have been directly involved in the death of any Christian. But it's really just a matter of degree, isn't it? Prior to your coming to Christ, you were his enemy. You might not have even said that that was the case, but you lived out the, your rebellion. Your every breath was breathed in rebellion against God. 
Again, not to the same degree as the Apostle Paul. But you were cut from the same cloth. You weren't as openly hostile to Christ and His church, but have you gotten a glimpse of the glory of God's grace upon you? Just think for a moment about, about the life that you once lived. Think about the, the way that, that you were a rebel against God. Think about the way that, that, that you, even, though, even if it was sanitized, even if you, even if you looked outwardly like a, like a decent moral person prior to coming to Christ. You were living for yourself, weren't you? The, the, the concept of, of living for God, of sacrificing for God, didn't even enter into your thinking. Or, or if it did, it was quickly pushed out by all the worldly things that you were filling your heart and your mind with. Now I know that's true of me. And your, your sin might not have even been as, as out there and in your face as mine was. But it's true for you as well. The Apostle Paul had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. Now he hasn't, Christ hasn't come to you physically like he did to Paul on that Damascus road. But, but have you had an encounter with Christ? Have you experienced his, his converting grace? You can't come away from an encounter like that unchanged. Paul Washer tells the story of a, of a preacher who comes very late to the service and, and explains, explains to the, 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 one of the other pastors there, he explains that, he says, well, the, the reason that I'm late is, is because as I was coming here, I got a flat tire on, on my car, and, and as I was changing the tar, car, one of the, the, one of the nuts rolled out into the street, and, and I wasn't thinking, but I just quickly ran into the street to get that nut, and, and I looked up and I saw a logging truck coming straight at me, and the logging truck ran me over. And so, I'm late for church because I was run over by a logging truck. Well, how do you think that that other pastor would respond if, if he said, well, you look pretty good for somebody who's been run over by a logging truck. You'd think he was crazy. You can't have an encounter with a logging truck and come away unchanged. How much more can you come away from an encounter with the risen Christ and not be changed? When you meet Christ, you will be changed. Every aspect of your life will be changed. And no, not necessarily all at one moment. <coughs> A process begins in you of, of, even though you're sanctified and set apart for God's purpose, there is an ongoing sanctification as you are transformed, as you grow more like Christ, as you walk through life, through the work of His Holy Spirit in your life. So when Christ comes to us, we, we don't really come as those who, 
who, have, who are whole become as those who have been already been run over by a logging truck. And he heals us. He, he, he makes our lives something new. He makes us whole. Beloved, when you get a glimpse of the glory of God's grace upon you in the gospel, you are changed. And like Paul, you will become small in your own eyes. You will see that the difference in your life is because of Christ. You will see that you can't, you can't take credit for what you've done. I've talked before about people who've and who knew me before in my sinful life, and they, they see me now, and they, they say, well, you, you just put yourself up, pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. And that's not the case at all. I had no power, no ability to change myself. I had been like somebody who was run over by a logging truck. The logging truck of sin, and that's true for all of us. So Paul, in this grace, was to preach to the Gentiles, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, verses 8 and 9. Again here, it's, it's to the Gentiles. We forget what that, what that would have meant to these original hearers, but there was, was a stark division they were, there was a, like, if you have seen um, what, if any movies that depicted the, the relationship between whites and blacks in the South during the, the, the civil rights, before the civil rights movement, that's really nothing compared to what was going on here. There was, there was outright hatred. So this is, when he says it's, it's light to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone, in this context, he's, he's not talking about, about everyone without exception. He's talking to everyone without distinction, both Jew and Gentile. And what is he proclaiming? The riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You can really only begin to imagine, you can only begin to imagine the blessings that you have received and will receive in Him. We've gotten, we've gotten a glimpse of this, but, but we really don't have any idea of how great these, this is. Apart from Revelation, this, this mystery is unknowable, but God chose to reveal it to Paul and then chose Paul to reveal it to us by the Spirit. And so we begin to, as we walk, as we're progressively sanctified, we begin to understand these things in a deeper and more profound way. But again, this is all just a foretaste of what we're going to receive one day, that day, when we behold Christ, when we see Him face to face. Next week we're going to see how Paul prays that the Spirit would, would give, well he says he prays for the Ephesians, but also for us, that, they, that God would, would give them strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Well, what does this grace look like in your life? You do understand, right, that God saved you for a purpose. Yes, 
you are a trophy of His grace, but you are not a trophy of His grace just to sit on a shelf collecting dust. You are a trophy of God's grace for His service, to be a minister of His grace. And by that, I don't just mean minister in the, the, the sense of, of a minister, like a, like a pastor is a minister. A minister here is really a, a servant. We're all servants, whether we're, we're pastors or, or anyone who is a Christian is a servant of the gospel. We're all ministers of the gospel. God saved you for a purpose. Now, God is not going to use you to save billions like he did the Apostle Paul. But I wonder, who does God want to use you to save? Who is it in your life that, that God wants you to minister to? To share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a family member. Or a co-worker. Or a neighbor. Or, or the person who cuts your hair. Or the teller at the bank. Who is it in your life? that God wants to use you to save. We'll talk a lot more about this when we get to Ephesians chapter 4, but, but gospel ministry is, is not just the, 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 the role for pastors. It's for all Christians. My role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to remind you of the call on God's, of God's call on your life. God has redeemed your life for His purpose. The message that went to Paul was never meant to stop with Paul. It was meant to be passed along. What would have happened if, if Paul said, oh, that's great, thank you God, I'm saved. And then just went into the desert somewhere. church never would have been established. These Ephesians would have died in their sins. But that was impossible. Because he had had an encounter with the risen Christ. He could not come away unchanged. What do you think would have happened if, if that Mohawk chief didn't pass along Laura Secord's message to that British lieutenant? Her mission would have been in vain. Yes, she would have been still considered a hero, but the American attack would not have been thwarted, and those British soldiers would have died. Again, what would have happened to you if someone didn't share the message of the gospel with you? If you were here as a Christian, it's because someone shared that message with you, that somebody passed along the message, and someone saved your life, not just your life, but your soul, with the message of the gospel. In Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, Paul explains 
the way this works. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how are they to call on him whom they have never heard? And how are they to believe in him? Sorry, and how are they to hear unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How are those people in your life going to hear the gospel unless you go to them with the gospel? Beloved, you have beautiful feet. Because you are carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what are some things that keep us from sharing the gospel? Think about those people that you've never talked with about Christ. What keeps you from sharing with them? Maybe, for me, sometimes i got to admit it's, it's fear of man. Because I'm afraid that they're going to think I'm some kind of a kook and, and not want to talk to you anymore. You ever experienced that? Or maybe it's just selfishness. That you, that you get so wrapped up in your own life that you don't even think about the people out there and that, that, they're, that they're headed for a crisis eternity. Maybe it's bad theology. Maybe you just don't understand the necessity, the command that was given to you to preach the gospel. But as was true for the Apostle Paul, those boundaries have been torn down in Christ. Remember back in Ephesians 2 that, that we are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that He has prepared in advance that you should walk in them. God has saved you by His grace to be ministers of His grace. And He's doing it by Christ's work in you. That's the focus of, of really much of Ephesians. That this power that is at work, God's power is at work in you. And by His grace, tap into that power. Have you ever seen tangibly how you've been used by God in the lives of others? Maybe you've been used by the Lord to help someone to overcome sin. As you've been an encouragement and as you've, you've shepherded them in, and discipled them. Maybe someone's come to, to faith through your sharing the gospel with them. And there might be people that you don't even know that you shared the gospel with years ago. I heard the story last week of a, a man who heard a, a sermon by a Puritan in England and rejected it. And then fully, I believe it was 70 years later, 7-0, 70 years later, he was sitting under a tree. Now he'd gone to the, the, gone to the United States, to, to the, the New World, and was sitting under a tree, and remembered that sermon at the age of 96, and was saved. We can be faithful to proclaim the gospel. We don't know what God's going to do with that. He's the one who does the work in the people's hearts. But when you get a glimpse of what your ministry in the lives of others is, it, it encourages you, it makes you want to do more. And sometimes we need to even just really have our eyes open to see how, how we're being used. I gotta say, like, even when you show up for church, 
It's an encouragement to my heart. When you show up to a prayer meeting or to a Bible study, it's an encouragement to the other folks who are there. And you can be used of God. Well, how do you feel when you know that you've been used of God? Does it make you feel like, oh, look at me. I think it looked what I did. It doesn't, does it? It humbles you. It makes you think like the Apostle Paul. Wow. God, you can use even me for the glory of your name. As we draw to a, to a close here, just let's look at these last few verses. And see here. The Apostle Paul is, is revealing that the church is part of the plan. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You are part of the plan. As a church, you are part of God's plan. And it's, this has been God's plan since the beginning. He is over all things and, and he is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And he is doing his work through the church, through you. But what he says here, this is, this is kind of mind-blowing. This is, this is, he's not even talking only about, uh, primarily here about people, about the ministry that we have in other people's lives. He's really moved on from that to say that, that the church now becomes a testimony that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, who's he talking about here? Later in Ephesians 6, he's going to use very, very similar terminology to speak of, of demonic powers. And there, there are demonic powers, it's, it's mind-blowing, but there are demonic powers even in heavenly places. You can see that in the book of Job, how, how I can't get my head around this, but how Satan has access to the throne room. But our conversion and our commission is a testimony to them. And I believe here we can, we can apply this even more broadly because these are things in which, the things of the gospel are things in which angels long to look. So, I, so it's, I don't think it's just demonic powers here, but, but our testimony, the testimony of our lives brings glory in the heavens. And it causes the, the angels to sing even more gloriously, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That we reveal the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God, like when you hold a diamond up to the light and it, and it refracts the, the, the colors of the rainbow. That's us. We're the diamond. We have been given the opportunity to share that gospel, to live out that gospel before not just people, witnesses on earth, but witnesses also in heaven. And so in verse 12, it says, we have boldness and accident and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have boldness and access to with confidence before into the throne room of God in a way that Satan could never even dream of having. Satan wouldn't want that kind of access. But we can call God our Father. God is our Father. Hebrews 10, 
verses 19 to 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, through his flesh, we have confidence to go before God. We have confidence to go before God even to ask forgiveness for our failures to walk in obedience for what he has done. God does not look at us and, and, and think, oh, what miserable wretches they are. He looks at us and he sees his son. He loves us with the same love that he has for his son. He crushed his son on that cross. Jesus Christ suffered for our sin. He was punished for our sin. He went into the grave, but three days later, he rose from the grave. And there was, was hundreds of witnesses to his resurrection. And those witnesses shared their witness with others, who shared their witness with others. And the gospel keeps moving on. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He was imprisoned in chains between two Roman guards. But he doesn't want these Ephesians to feel sorry for him. He doesn't want their pity. Because for him, he knew that it was totally worth it. Paul knew that the blessings of salvation in Christ and his calling as a steward of God's grace are worth far more than any trial he experienced in this life. Even Laura Secord, who, who saved mere human lives through her exertion, do you think she would have said it was worth it? To, to suffer the fear and, and the, the danger of, of being through in those woods and, and the, the danger of those, of those hostile soldiers, do you think she would have said it was worth it? Well, how much more is it worth it to suffer for the gospel, for the glory of God? John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison for preaching the gospel. <coughs> if you're not familiar with John Bunyan, you should really become familiar with John Bunyan. His book, The Pilgrim's Progress, is the second bestseller of all time after the Bible. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. Do you think John Bunyan would say it was worth it? What about those saints that we pray for week in, week out? These saints in Liberia, do you think that they would say it's worth it? As you know, my family has been going through a, a, a pretty severe trial. And I have to admit that there have been times that I've been tempted to want pity. Sometimes I've been tempted to wonder whether it's worth it. Now, no, we are not suffering for the gospel specifically. But as you've had opportunity to live out the gospel, before so many who are suffering without the gospel, and to testify of the, the grace of God in our lives, I'm getting a glimpse 
that yes, it's worth it. It's worth it to live out the gospel in all of life. But what about the trial that you're going through or the circumstances of your life? Do you think it's worth it? Think again about those things that are keeping you from sharing the gospel. Would it be worth it to overcome those things and to be faithful to what God calls you to do? To share the gospel in the workplace or in the home or in your neighborhood or in your classroom? In the marketplace? If you begin to understand the grace of God in your life, as you begin to understand the grace of, of God in your life, you will say, yes, it is worth it. And you will say that those things that are keeping me from sharing the gospel have no power over me. Because that same power that was at work in the Apostle Paul is the same power that was at work in Jesus, and that's the same power that is at work in me. And so by God's grace and for God's glory, I can overcome, you can overcome for the glory and for the spread of the gospel. And at the end of your life, you will say, it was definitely worth it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glories of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that, that we are links in a chain that was forged before an eternity passed. Lord, we thank you for Christ, for what he suffered for us, that he rose from the grave victorious over sin, over the devil, over the world, over hell. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his ministry. We thank you, Lord, for that chain that, that led even to us. Lord, help us. Would you help us as a church to see the power that is at work in us to help us to, to proclaim the gospel to others that the church would continue, that your name would be exalted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.